0: This is the Horse Radio Network. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Businesswomen. And you are listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how
1: they build and sustain a successful business. Today's show, we talk to Ashley Wilson about her business in real estate investment, her writing history, and how it helps her balance her life, and tips for any business owner to make smart investments.
0: Ashley Wilson is the co-founder of Bar Down Investments, LLC, and House It Look, LLC. Co-host of the Passive Investing Show. Best selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, Knowledge and Inspiration from 20 Women Real Estate Investors, and a Bigger Pockets series host. She started investing in real estate in 2009 and has been involved in over $100 million in transactions with both single and multifamily real
1: estate across over 1,500 units. When Ashley is not working on her businesses, she enjoys spending time with her family, including her husband and their two daughters. Additionally, Ashley enjoys competing in the hunters with her horse Dayakara and Wow. Ashley and her horse Soho were the 2013 amateur owner 3-3 horse of the year recipients. And most recently, she was reserve champion in 2021 on her horse Dayakara at the Zone 2 Finals in the Amateur Owner 3-3 Division. Ashley also imports horses, trains, and sells them through her business, Expat Horses. Hi, Ashley. We're really excited to
0: have you on the podcast today to talk about all the various types of business that you do. And it's cool to see you're also a rider and have a connection to the equestrian industry as well.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So, kind of starting out about your book, we wanted to talk to you about the inspiration behind it and how you came to the point where you wanted to write something.
2: I was attending a conference a few years back in real estate. That's what I do as my day job. And at this conference, the co founders of the real estate investor community asked for all the women in attendance at this conference to have lunch together. And out of 450 attendees, 16 of us gathered together at two tables that were pushed together. And we sat and had lunch together. And you know that saying, it hits you like a wave. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I looked around the room, and for the first time in my life, even though, despite the fact that my dad was a general contractor, I was always surrounded by men. I went to a high school that was all boys until my sophomore year, when I went there, and I was outnumbered by men. And also, my senior year of college, I lived with fourteen men and just myself in a <laughs> uh, 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 a college residence. That was the only time where I was dumbfounded at how many men were in this room and the lack of women in this room. My husband and I had both attended the conference. So on the way home, driving from Philadelphia back to our home in Radnor, I said to him, I'm going to write a book called The Only Woman in the Room. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to highlight women in real estate. And over the next year or so, I built it out in my mind that I wanted to find women who were going to be great role models for other women to look up to. My husband and I have two daughters, and they need role models as well. There's going to be a time when they're teenagers and they don't want to hang out with their mom. And I need them to have other cool women in this industry that they can aspire to be. Or maybe if they don't want to go into real estate, they can at least look up to and see the really amazing things they're doing. But the other benefit that I wanted to provide was I noticed that a lot of keynote speakers had a book behind them and they, were able to get these speaking engagements and get all these opportunities because their experience was highlighted. All of the women in the book, 19 other women, they are all qualified on their own right. And they just needed someone to shine a spotlight on what they were doing and their experience because they did warrant being a keynote They just hadn't been given the opportunity. And since then, the book has been a bestseller in multiple categories. Barbara Corcoran endorsed the book. It has really been phenomenal to see how much attention this book has gotten, especially for men, shockingly. But it has also provided an opportunity for all of those women in the book to go on and do some really incredible things that... I'm not saying they wouldn't have had that opportunity without the book, but I'm sure it's skyrocketed or at least assisted in the process.
0: Yeah. And what's an important point that people can take away from reading it, even if they're not involved in real estate?
2: You can do anything you set your mind to. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your demographic, sexual orientation. It doesn't matter any of those factors. It, does not matter. All that matters is your desire to execute on whatever you want to do. Execute on your dreams is really what anyone has the power to do. And I think all of these stories in the book emulate that concept.
0: Yeah. And do you think that having
2: your equestrian background helped at all as well? hundred percent. It has helped me throughout my entire life because frankly, I didn't grow up in a privileged upbringing. I had to work for everything that I had with respect to life and writing. Both of my parents worked. And I, even though I went to private school, I went to my entire education was paid for through financial aid. So I qualified for it from a financial standpoint, but also too, I had to work hard academically and athletically to get those scholarships. Writing though at a very early age taught me about empathy. It taught me about patience. It taught me about hard work, it taught me about dedication. And when I was before the legal working age, my mom would drop me off at the barn at 7am and she'd pick me up on her way home from work at 6pm. And I would spend the entire day mucking stalls, cleaning the barn, cleaning tack, riding horses, prepping horses, turning out horses. I mean, you name it. I did it at a very, very early age in middle school. I started that. And then I did that throughout most of my time growing up and riding. That has been a huge contributor to why I can ride the horses I can ride because... I had so much experience riding problem, not necessarily problem horses, but horses that had to work through something. And patience is something that I don't think any other sport, maybe golf might teach you, but riding to communicate with a teammate in a nonverbal capacity to execute on the same end goal takes patience. It takes understanding and it takes hard work. And riding has really shown me the benefits to those skills. And then I use them, obviously, in every single day of my life in my job.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that and how much the
1: sport has helped them in business.
2: It absolutely has. And so many levels and still to this day.
1: Were there any other women that you highlighted in your book that also were equestrians?
2: No, there are actually not a lot of riders in the type of real estate that I do. It's surprising. There are riders that passively invest in real estate. But in terms of what I do, I reposition large apartment buildings. I don't know... Unfortunately, I don't know any other riders in this space.
1: Can you explain a little bit more about the different types of real estate businesses that you're involved in? Like repositioning, like what does that mean to reposition an apartment building?
2: So it's basically, it's kind of like flipping a house, but it's a little bit different. It's more like flipping a business. So most people think, you know, I invest in real estate, but The real estate is the vehicle, but I'm really investing in a business and turning around. So with an apartment building, you have your general operations of the tenants that are providing your rental income, and then you have your operating expenses. And you'd be surprised, but a lot of those apartment buildings aren't well-operated. And this could be for a plethora of reasons. It could be due to the management in place, but it could also be due to the fact that the property is in distress. The ownership group doesn't take care of the property and therefore it doesn't get utilized to the best of its ability. So what I do is I look for properties that are underperforming and then we purchase them And the way we're able to purchase these multi-million dollar properties is we have a group of passive investors. We either partner with family offices, institutional type equity, or we do what's called syndication, which is basically like crowdfunding. And we bring on individual investors and then we pull together their resources. That's the equity side of the capital stack obviously we access a bank for the debt side and we're able to buy these 20, 30, 40, 50 million plus properties. And then over the course of two to three years, we reposition them. So we'll evict tenants who are not paying, that are in essence living rent free, and we will renovate the property. So for example, I have a 409 unit in Houston, Texas, where we're putting $6.5 into the renovation currently. We've redone all the roofs, redoing the siding, painting the entire property. We're renovating the interior of the units. We've Fully renovated the pools, landscaping, driveways, garages, you name it, we're doing that. And we're creating a safer community as well. We've put in security on the property. So we're taking the property, repositioning it. And once we get it repositioned and performing, then we will sell the property and a new group will come in and continue to operate it on a stabilized basis.
1: Wow. So, how hands on are you in all of those operations?
2: When I first started out, I was very hands-on. Since then, I've grown my company quite significantly. So I have a lot of people that operate on those factors every single day. And that way, we're able to scale. We're able to acquire more properties and offer more investment opportunities for our investors. And we're also too... When the benefit of multifamily is... Your ownership operations significantly increase the larger you grow, meaning you can provide more support systems, you can build in more programs. Even though we're tapped into community service programs, the larger we get, the more community service programs we can tap into. So I'm sure you can guess I'm a huge animal advocate as we all are. So we partner with local humane societies and we do Adoption events at our property. So that's not just for the residents on the property, but that's for the greater community at large. And what we'll do at those events is we'll buy supplies in advance, and anyone who adopts at the event will give them, you know, a dog bed or whatever type of startup type stuff that they need for the pet that they're adopting. And also too, for the humane society, it works well because it's a location that they can host an event that they know will bring in like a food truck or something and really support them. Especially we like to target kill shelters because obviously that you know has its own inherent benefit. And then for our residents, what we'll do is we will waive all pet deposits so they can adopt. And then something that I'm a huge advocate for are no breed restrictions. So we still do a pet interview, but something that's really important to me is ensuring that all dogs can be adopted, not limited by breed on our properties. So even if that means we have to pay more in insurance coverage, we do that. So we are always a very pet-friendly community. That's great. Can
0: you talk about how your business evolved over the years and how you made the decision to expand?
2: Yeah. So what's interesting is I actually didn't start in real estate. I started in pharmaceuticals. I worked for Sanofi Aventus Wyeth before it was acquired by Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. And I worked in clinical research and development. And I only was investing in real estate on the side because I wasn't a firm believer of the stock market. I liked the fact that real estate was a tangible backed asset. And I liked the fact that real estate provides a lot of tax advantages. So for those 2 reasons, I started investing on the side in real estate. And that quickly turned into the ability to leave my W-2 and work full-time in real estate. So I started off in real estate investing in short-term rentals. There's a thing called house hacking, which is actually how I originally started. House hacking means that you rent out a part of your space and that income offsets your expenses. So for example, if you bring on roommates or a family member, even in my own house that I live in now, we had my brother and his wife living with us. And my brother, instead of paying rent, was renovating our house because it was a house that needed a full renovation. So there are a lot of really creative ways you can do house hacking and get started in real estate with no money down. Most people think you need to have money to get into real estate, but they're... A lot of great ways that you can access real estate with no money out of pocket. And so we were able to kind of do some short term rentals, long term rentals. And then eight years ago, I started a flipping business a high end flipping business with my father so my dad is a general contractor and he's had his business 45 years and we were able to start this flipping business together and we flipped homes predominantly historic homes in the main line or the suburbs of Philadelphia Pennsylvania kind of by you know Devon Horsehoe and areas like that so we have had that business for 8 years and about 4 years ago my husband and I got together and We knew we always wanted to get into commercial real estate investing in apartments. So we transitioned at that time and started buying apartments outside of Pennsylvania. So my portfolio now is predominantly in Houston, Texas. I've sold off some properties outside of Houston, Texas, but that's where they're all located today. And we've purchased over a 1,000 units, a little over 1,100 to be exact, and over $100 in real estate value. And that's all... Because of just the tenacity of continuing to work very hard and stay disciplined, which is all rooted in my upbringing of writing, really. It really taught me so much about committing to something and going down that path, and that's what I've been able to do with real estate too.
0: How scary was the leap from leaving a full-time job like that and going into something that you weren't sure you know was going to work
2: out? It's funny because when I look back, I think I probably should have been more scared than I was. (laughs) And maybe that's why I made the leap. I was really lucky in the sense that I had the support of my husband. He was in real estate I mean, he was actually a professional ice hockey player. And he was the one who initially got me interested in real estate because he also too didn't want to put his money in the stock market. And we started researching alternative investment opportunities. So he encouraged me to figure out something besides pharma because pharma was really taking over my life. I was working anywhere from 100 to 130 hour weeks. And that was just too much strain on our relationship in full transparency. So he said that we needed something that had more balance um, between the two of us, because the great thing about pharma is they pay you very well. The bad thing about pharma is they are the golden handcuff industry. They... Mm -hmm. Really know how to get it so you can't leave, you get addicted to it, and that's what I was addicted to wanting to be the CEO of a major pharmaceutical company at all costs. And then, when my husband basically showed me a mirror of, like, well, one of those costs is our relationship, that made me change course real fast, <laughs> right? So, so I'm just very grateful that today. Real estate has provided me the freedom to own my own time and own my destiny and be there for my children. And two weeks ago, I went to the Princeton horse show and it's not like, okay, well, I got to make sure that I have approval to take this time off. And it's kind of that whole concept on Monday morning. Do you go to work on your dream or someone else's? And that's something I wanted to do. I wanted to work on my own dream on Monday morning. So that's another reason that real estate has been such an amazing impact in my life. Yeah. Are you still
1: doing the flipping the high-end houses with your father?
2: We have kind of taken a break from doing it. My father and I, he's partnered up with another good friend of mine and he's still flipping with him, but because I've really shifted focus on going the multifamily route. And that has come, you know, my book. And I do a lot of speaking engagements across the country. I also have a coaching program and I have a podcast. I just have a lot on my plate right now. Mm -hmm. Then keeping up with writing on top of that, it's a huge juggling act and having two young kids. So there's a lot of balls in the air right now. And flipping has been on hold for about a year now until a lot of factors come back into play. The market changes. I'm not real confident on residential housing values right now. It's really tough to forecast out what pricing will be and interest rates will be in six months to figure Mm -hmm. out what you can sell the property for and what your profit margins are. So I don't really like when I don't have security in those numbers residential real estate is governed by comparable sales and commercial real estate and apartments, you control your own evaluation. So if two apartment buildings are right next door to each other, and one has really good operations and one has really bad operations, they were built by the same builder in the same year, the one can sell for millions more than the other one, just because the operations are better. I like that control variable. A lot better than your neighbors decides, I just need to get out of this house. So I'm going to sell it for a $200,000 discount. And then you're like, what? I was going to sell yeah. my house now and now I can't. Right. So that can be a little frustrating.
1: That's really interesting, though, to learn about that because I wouldn't think that about mm-hmm. like apartments. And so that's really interesting. How do you divide your time be- between all of that?
2: I have a very chaotic schedule and it's probably my biggest downfall because. I am a type of person who likes to ride when the weather is great. So what that <laughs> means in the middle of the day, I'm like, oh, it's so nice out. I should go riding. I kind of just changed my schedule, which my husband absolutely hates. He's more regimented <laughs> type of personality. I should probably have a more structured schedule, but I've always kind of thrived in chaos and that has continued. So with horse shows being more, I don't know, like structured with pre entries, Hmm. that makes a little bit difficult for me to kind of structure because obviously I need to ride a certain amount of times to prep, you know, my horses before going to these shows. So that has challenged it a little bit, but I still, I probably work every single day still, but not as many hours. So I'm trying to create more balance and when I'm not working, really be in tune to my family and my children and not on a device or, We don't watch a lot of TV in our house. We really try to do kind of active things together, whether it's go for a hike or build Legos. My kids are five and seven. So these are the activities. It's not like they're 16 and I'm building Legos with them. I mean, if they want to, I will in the future, but age appropriate type activities of what they want to do. I take them riding. You just really want to create memories with my children and they know I work and they know I work really hard. That's important for me to be an example for them. But I also think it's a good example to be present with them and to show that you can have balance. Awesome.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, you set such an example to them by working and them seeing you work. And I think it's great for kids to see that as well. And we've talked to a financial advisor on our podcast, and a lot of times we talk about finances and how much people like just don't want to deal with it, or they're not, they think they're not good at it, or, um, and that's something I think that you talk a lot about probably on your podcast. And maybe, you know, if you have any tips for people on how to take control of their finances and investments.
2: Yeah, I do. So, Particularly when it comes to women, I speak a lot about women and owning your finances. I think if you look historically decades prior, you'll see that women weren't really encouraged to pursue careers specifically. Once they were encouraged to pursue education and careers, they were more encouraged to go into administrative assistant type positions and not encouraged to go into STEM fields like math and science. And I think when you look at someone's comfort with investing, it's built on the foundation of mathematics and then accounting and then high level principles of investing. That's really kind of the foundation, the structure and the Jumping off point that someone has. I personally believe that everyone, regardless of their gender, should be familiar with their personal finances and also to opportunities to enhance their financial situation. I always advise having a CPA that specializes in real estate. And that is not a biased comment for saying that I'm not a CPA. But why I say that is because real estate is... It's like you're playing Monopoly. right? If you're playing Monopoly and you play it for the first time, you think the object of the game is to buy up all of the properties, no matter what type of property you buy up the properties that you land on. And then you're buying those purple properties and the orange properties. But by the time you get around to Park Place and Boardwalk, you've run out of money. So you can't buy those places. So you got to go around again. But really, the object of monopoly is to buy the right properties and build your houses and hotels as fast as possible. That's a different strategy. And what I think the US tax code is are the rules of the game. Similar to if you knew the rules of the game on Monopoly the first time you played Monopoly, you probably have a better chance of winning the game. If you want to win the game at life, it's through tax advantage investing. And the reason why the wealthy are so wealthy is not solely based on the fact that they make more money. It's that they keep more money and that allows them to invest more money. And that money then works for them faster and sooner and harder than all of us. And when I first started, I thought to myself, well, because I did not grow up in a wealthy upbringing... I thought to myself, well, that's unobtainable. That's not something that I could ever achieve. But that being said, I also was very strict and diligent about, okay, for two weeks, I'm going to track every single expense, even if that means... You know whatever Gatorade costs that Wawa when I go and run home from the barn and I'm super thirsty and I want a Gatorade. So I tracked my expenses and I didn't limit my expenses, but I tracked my normal everyday expenses for two weeks. And then I extrapolated that over a month of whatever expenses I had, like for example, a car payment or rent or something like that. And then what I realized is that by significantly cutting my expenses and packing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to lunch, which I did for over a year, and not stopping at Wawa when, I, when I'm coming home from the bar and I'm thirsty, I can make it home. It's a 30-minute drive. I can do it. I'm a big girl. Doing all of those things, next thing you know, you save up a pretty good nest very quickly. And then putting yourselves in opportunities to be able to deploy that nest that it can keep growing for you. So that is really the secret is how do you stay disciplined? A lot of people are quick to discount my story because my husband was a professional hockey player. But when he first started out, he was in the minors. And in the minors, you don't make a significant amount of money. And coupled with that, there are people in the minors who get huge signing bonuses and they want to go out to dinners all the time. And that's kind of the atmosphere you're in. We didn't do that. We stayed home and we cooked. We didn't go out on a Tuesday night for dinner when half the team was going out. I mean, there's certain things you have to do from a team building perspective, but then there are other things that you're just doing and you're just spending money recklessly. And staying disciplined and sacrificing in the short term really can exponentially help you in the long term. And that's something that anyone can do as well. That's not something that is just limited to certain people versus others. It's really being creative and finding a way to stay disciplined and put yourself in opportunities where you can continue to grow your wealth. I think that's
1: really good advice because I think that, especially like currently with the rising cost of everything, I think that people need to be creative and kind of think outside the box in order to sustain themselves right now. For sure. Everything's so getting so expensive, and horses
0: are certainly not a cheap sport as well. (laughs) Did you, were you always like finding a way to ride and continuing in the sport, or did you take a break for a while until you could afford it?
2: I took a break. So when I was growing up, obviously I told you I worked off my lessons, I worked off the ability to ride. And as I got older, I mean, my, I have to say, my parents did buy me a pony when I was younger, but it, for the price they paid, I know how much they paid. And it wasn't what everyone thinks of when you say, oh, you ride horses and you must live in a mansion and whatever. It wasn't like that at all. So I worked off the board. I worked off, you know, it, as, to your point, they're very expensive. I have found, and I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but for me personally, because I'm such a driven, dedicated person, I can get burnt out too. So it's kind of two things that were going on. One is the affordability factor, but two also was the burnout factor. So when I graduated from college, I not only did I start working full time, but I also too got my master's full time, which left little time. For for me to be able to ride as well. And then I had been used to riding so much prior to that. I think the break was really good. It allowed me to appreciate the sport again, as opposed to feel like it was an extension of my job. And feeling like I have to go to the barn instead of thinking I get to go to the barn. That kind of mindset shift was really important. So I did take several years off, especially as my husband's career was taking us all over the place. And it took me a while to save up for the first horse that I bought as an adult. And he ended up being AO course of the year in the 33s three i think it was 2013 or 2014 with me but almost everyone in who I was competing against paid easily three times what i paid for my horse as a starting off point if not probably 20 times what i paid for that horse mm-hmm. so that was a really proud moment to know the time off was needed the repositioning of my mindset was needed and coming at it with gratitude, really. To be really grateful that at 4 years old, my mom thought to even start me riding in the first place because she wanted something that the 2 of us would do together when I was in high school. And I probably wasn't wanting to hang out with my mom. We could always go to riding together to all the way of being able to be surrounded by trainers and barns that allowed me to pay off my lessons that way, allowed me to pay off my board that way, but also to spend the time to train me and really work on my horsemanship and teach me the right ways to go about working with a horse and communicating with a horse. So that is something I'm forever grateful for.
0: Yeah. We spoke with a couple of women at the recent... Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular Horse Show. And they both had kind of similar paths where they went to college and then, you know, started their careers and didn't have time for the horses. And they were both very dedicated and hardworking. One was a lawyer, one worked in investment banking. And they both were like, we can do. Two things well, not three. You know, we can do our job and we can have our families, but horses are gonna have to wait. And they both waited for decades and came back to it and are even more happy in it now and able to do it, do the sport the way they want to. And one woman was like, I waited 40 years and now I have 16 horses. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting to hear, you know, that. It's true. I mean, you see people riding at all ages and, or even just being a part of the sport and owning it, owning horses or something. There's always ways to participate and come
1: back to it later when you, when it can be a bigger part of your life.
2: Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. I thought that was so interesting when they were talking about that at the horse show. And Mm -hmm. it made me think of like, I've taken little gaps in riding, but also sometimes you have to be like, okay, you know what? Maybe I do need a break because I can't do it to the level that I want to be doing it at. And Mm -hmm. I'm beating myself up more because I can't get there. So maybe taking a break and stepping back and giving myself time to get the funds together, to have a nicer horse or to go to bigger shows is okay to do. And I think that people, especially our listeners need to hear that there are people out there who do that. It's okay. Take a break. You can come back to it. Yeah, definitely.
2: I think most people do too. Everyone yeah, that I've... Do. Everyone I've talked to, I mean... I don't know many people who have done it straight through.
0: Yeah. Continuously. Yep. Yeah. Especially if you're an amateur. I mean, it's one thing if horses are your business and you're a trainer and a a professional rider, but I think for amateurs, most of, and women especially, take a big break. And I think Jen, you had the next question. We kind of
1: touched on how much things are changing in the economy. Right. Yeah. And I was just wondering, how do you think you're going to keep your businesses profitable?
2: So what's interesting is, and this is something I didn't know until I got into the business, is that the market cycle that we see on a national level is not market cycles that you see on a local level. You can have different market cycles locally than you have nationally, and also to buy asset class. So for example, case in point, pre-COVID, there were 2 markets in the entire country that were coming out of a recession when it came to multifamily compared to every other market in the country. Every other market in the country was typically in hyper-supply phase of the market cycle. But in... Multifamily in Houston and in Little Rock, Arkansas, those two markets were coming out of a recession. So they were poised to be rebuilding and at a different point and then a different investing strategy. Where we find ourselves today, COVID kind of reset every everything. I think a lot of people are still a little uncertain as to are we in the recession now? Are we about to be in a recession? I think we can all agree that we're somewhere near a recession in a recession. Sometimes you can't really tell until you look back and play Monday Night Quarterback or whatever, Monday Morning Quarterback. So it can be challenging. The one thing with apartments that has historically been pretty strong is the fact that as interest rates rise, housing affordability becomes less of something that people can achieve. Housing affordability gets strained. And when housing affordability gets strained, people turn to renting. So what you typically see during a recession is actually rents can even go up during a recession. And the reason is because the demand shifts. There's a higher demand. When the economy is doing really well, the interest rates are low, which we have seen over the past few years. Housing affordability is greater. So people move out of their apartments more. They can afford to own a house. So Typically and historically, if you look back, the multifamily sector has been a very recession-proof investment. I think in this time that we find ourselves in, it will probably be the same. I think it'll operate very close to being the same because interest rates are not only rising, but rising at a very quick rate which we haven't historically seen. And I think that's going to threaten some current homeowners with variable interest rates, along with some people who are already... Maybe they were looking for a house and now they can't. But I think we're also seeing two, two populations that are renting more than they have historically. And those two populations are the baby boomers, 10,000 people are retiring every single day right now across the country. And wow. baby boomers tend to be more transient than that age range has been historically. They're willing to not set roots in a home and go to apartment living so they don't have the maintenance and the upkeep of home ownership. But you're also seeing this in the generation, whatever generation we're in, Y, element of P, I don't even know anymore. Z. Z. (laughs) Um, So that generation is renting, which typically does rent, but there are more renters by choice in that generation and generation Y and X than... Previously, as reported by self-report, you know we can argue whether or not they're actually reporting accurately in these surveys. But mm. there are a lot of runners by choice. People don't want homeownership, and also too, people like to be able to travel. RVs are taking off like crazy because of people's wanting a more transient lifestyle. A lot of my friends are taking their kids out of school, buying RVs, homeschooling them and traveling all over the country. A lot of my friends are doing that. That is something I had never even thought of until the past year or two. And it seems like a lot of people are doing that. So I think we're shifting in terms of the traditional save up, buy a house. And frankly, the secret's out. If you're paying down your mortgage, which growing up, that's what I was told was like the American dream. You buy the house, you pay down your mortgage, you own your house free and clear. Okay. Well, if your mortgage rate was say 5% and you know, on the investments that I'm offering it, let's just scratch that, forget the investments I'm offering. The stock market average annual return is anywhere between 8 and 9% historically. So even if you take that metrics, which is low compared to alternative investing, like for example, in real estate, even if you take that metrics, if your money is sitting in your house at 5% interest rate, basically that's what you're paying down, right? Is that 5% interest rate. You're actually losing money by paying down your house as opposed to even just putting it in the stock market and making the arbitrage. Because with a stock market, let's say you're getting that 9%, you that 9% pays for pays down your house, you're still making that 4% spread. So it would be better to put that... Now, I'm not a CPA. Can't tell you your CPA I'm not a financial <laughs> advisor. But I'm just saying, theoretically, the secret's out of the bag now that you need to make smart decisions because... You're not going to retire off of your 401k. That doesn't happen anymore. You're not going to... Social Security is not going to help you if it's around by the time you retire. And paying down your house does not have the benefits that it used to have. So... Or if it ever had. So the question is, how do you become smarter with your money? And some people are saying, well, it might be smarter if I'm paying rent. And then I take that nest egg that I would have had to do a down payment and I invest that. And that money pays for my life and pays for my lifestyle. So the more revenue streams you can get, especially in an inflationary environment, we're in a highly inflationary environment still. That just means the dollar is even less than it was yesterday and the day before. So it's really important that you take control of your financial situation and you're active about pursuing opportunities where you can create different revenue streams. And if someone's listening to this saying... Well, that's great in theory, but how do I do that? How do I create different <laughs> revenue streams? Right. Right. There are so many little things that you could do. So for example, you could literally, we'll take the horse industry. You could literally have a, a blog news newsletter that you maybe you're an expert on shoeing horses, like different shoes. You know, I I don't know what you're the expert on, but everyone's the expert in something. It doesn't even have to be horse-related. And you could go out, market that, create a newsletter, and say someone signs up for $5 a month or something trivial. Well, you do that to build up your list. It does take time. But the point is, if you build up a big enough list, then you go to your go to people who could sponsor you, sponsor that newsletter, and you pitch it to them and say, Hey, look at this list I have of investor, or not investors or of, non-investors of followers. All of a sudden, you have a thousand people, you have 2000 people, you go to farm vet, you go to these different providers and say, Hey, I have this list of followers. Would you like to sponsor? And you slowly build up. And then once that's going Maybe you do an on-demand training that someone can access for $100 and it has all this on-demand content. And that's something that you can pitch through the newsletter, but doesn't take any more active oversight. And you just have to get creative and figure out all these different opportunities that you can just set it up first and then kind of forget it, so to speak. I mean, it still involves a little bit of management, but there are a lot of different ways in which you can build. And then next thing you know, people will say, oh, that person's an overnight success. And in reality, you've been working on it for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. What's the one thing that you think makes your businesses so successful?
2: I think we're real with our customers. We're real with our employees. I'll give an example with our employees. Recently, we had a a situation where we just noticed that this one individual... There's just something off in terms of attention, distraction, right? And the... Traditional way to manage that is to say, okay, this is a warning. The next time we could let you go. We have that right. Blah blah blah. That's kind of the traditional way to, to handle it, and that's how I've seen it handled when I worked in corporate. The way we handled it is, you know, we notice that you're a little distracted. What can we do to help you? What What's distracting you? Even if it's outside the business, like how can we help what you're dealing with? And that type of engagement, I think, subconsciously tells that person that they're not just a number, that they're a part of our family. Our business is our family kind of situation. And we want everyone to be successful. And we want everyone to feel that their individual input is directly causing the company's success. And that we genuinely care about The people that we work with, it's not a matter of convenience just because we're working with them that we ask them how they're doing. We genuinely care how they're doing. And that's Mm -hmm. the same as it goes with our investors. I would be shocked if there were any investors we didn't call back within a couple hours a day at most. But we really care about helping people. We really care about our communities. We really care about our residents. You know, If they're struggling, we are... Literally working with them one-on-one to help them, especially during COVID. That was something where we helped them apply for unemployment. We helped them look for other jobs. We, helped, we did welfare checks once a week to make sure they were okay on large properties. These weren't 20-unit properties. These are 200-plus-unit properties. So I think that's what makes us different.
0: Yeah. And I think that applies to businesses of all sizes, putting the care and the time into growing it and being relatable and open to everyone. And you usually find that comes back in success.
2: Yeah, we have, we definitely have doing right. Doing the right thing is always the thing you should do, Mm. but it's also to been something where if you do the right thing, you you don't really have to worry in a sense about the results because the results tend to just be very positive when you're doing the right thing. Well, awesome. Every episode,
1: we have the same four questions for our guests and Connor starts with the first one. What is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives?
2: Educate. Educate, educate, educate. When I started out in real estate, I'm just gonna use this as a parallel, you don't have to be in real estate, but when I started out in real estate, there was basically one resource. There were books. Mm-hmm. Um, actually two resources, I should say. There are books, and there was this community called Bigger Pockets that has they have a podcast, and they were the first community that really turned real estate into free education flowing throughout the organization and through different means. But today, you can find everything on YouTube. You can find everything on YouTube. You can find podcasts on YouTube. You can find how-to on YouTube. I would be surprised if there's something that you would be inquisitive about that is not available on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So spend the time to educate yourself. And that is the first step. And then figure out a plan, set a deadline, set a goal and execute. Great.
0: What is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally?
2: Definitely Mm -hmm. exercise. So I either run or ride, but that keeps me motivated. It keeps me, keeps energy high, provides me an opportunity to think (laughs) too. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy just exercising. Yeah.
0: Lots of people have said that and how much, you know, it clears their head and gives them time to come up with ideas or be creative.
1: What's your favorite
2: horse movie? (sighs) I struggle with horse movies because I cry (laughs) at Hallmark commercials. So (laughs) typically every horse movie has me bawling at some point of the movie, which I really like, I never watched war horse because I just knew Mm. I would cry. I watched I technically watched Secretariat, but I was like literally like under a blanket, making sure people didn't see me cry. I cry over everything. Like, oh my gosh. I'm, I, huh? But my favorite, I liked like a lot of the classic ones. What was the one where it was named after the medicine? The horse was like, I want to say, like,
1: oh, was that the horse with the gray flannel
2: suit? Is that it? I think so. What's his name it was, oh. Yeah, um, it's like Apersol or so, yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like that. I also too like something to talk about. I believe. Oh with yeah, with Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts and yeah. I believe Amanda Forte was the stunt double in oh, that, really? in that movie. And I'm friends with Amanda now, but when I was younger. She was like a huge idol of mine. I looked up to her so much, and I'm pretty sure she was a stunt double in that movie. So I, I really like that movie. In fact, that probably might be the only horse movie I didn't cry, <laughs> 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 but I cry on every horse movie. Yeah, horse and in our... the gray.
1: Horse in the gray flannel suit is Asper Cell, yes. yeah. <laughs> <as for sell>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that and... movie. Our last
0: question is, who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast?
2: I bet Amanda would be fantastic. I was also thinking before, you know, I've been prepared with this answer. Um, Jamie Aletto is also a really good friend of mine too. And Jamie is just phenomenal. Both Jamie. Yeah, I think they both be incredible. So my answer is actually two people. (laughs) All right, great. We love more suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you
0: so much for joining us today and telling us about your business and how it can help others and helping us understand more about it. It was really interesting.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Thank you again for having me. I really enjoyed this.
0: Awesome. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. So that was really interesting to talk to Ashley and all the different things that she's involved in and how she got into real estate investing. We didn't know her background in pharma. And so that was really interesting to hear how she made the shift
1: because she was working
0: so many hours a week. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, that was a lot, a lot of hours. And that I liked how she kind of like, went to pursue her dream and what she was saying about, do you want to wake up and chase your dream or somebody else's, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that really hit me. I was like, oh yeah. Because honestly, when you're working in a situation like she was... And it is addictive, right? And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm at a sales meeting now and they (laughs) hype you up and I'm ready to go sell and I'm ready to go light the world on fire. And so I totally get where she's coming from there. But sometimes you have to kind of back it up and be like... Is that my goal or is this my goal? And you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't have a family and kids. And so I think I have a little bit different mindset than like her, where she was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go do this for myself. I do plenty for myself, but right. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And just
0: hearing her talk, even like when she got out of college and she was going for her master's and working. And you could tell she's definitely somebody who can handle a lot of work and is really dedicated to what she puts her mind to. I loved the idea of her book and getting inspiration and advice from women in her field. That is so cool and how she got the idea for it because I think that really applies exactly to what we try to do as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it is shocking when you look in a room and there are women, but when you put them all together, you're kind of like, well, this is great. There's this many women. But at the same time, it's like, wow, we are so small compared to the men in the room. Her saying how it kind of waved over her, it was like very impactful. It is, it can be. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I don't know much about that type
0: of real estate investment and the tips that she gave were really interesting for people to kind of think about and how they could apply it to their own
1: lives and businesses as well. I think I took a little bit away from it too. Like she's not dealing with like little houses. She's dealing with giant millions of dollars. When she was talking about renovating one of the apartment complexes for like millions of dollars, it's like, wow, that makes me sweat thinking about it. (laughs) I mean, thinking about renovating my bathroom makes (laughs) me sweat. (laughs) Like, right. <laughs> much less something like that. But it, she broke it down and made it feel like it's totally achievable to anybody, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure
0: there are lots of steps and a lot of work to get to that point, but it was cool to hear her story and how she's been able to bring horses back into her life
1: and find it as an outlet during the day. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're here for, right? With the horses right. and the businesses. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, we, I'm glad we had her on and we got to chat yeah. about that because it really opened my eyes to some things. Yeah, for sure. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah. Find the links to today's guests and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more
0: at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and
1: search Horse Radio Network. Now go plan your investing strategy.